Engaging Leader, Episode 204, The Role of Men in Tackling Gender Inequality at Work, featuring Michelle King, Netflix's Director of Inclusion. Brought to you by the team at Workforce Communication. Find out more at WorkforceCommunication.com. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. You know, I was surprised to learn recently that when men are actively involved in gender diversity efforts, 96% of organizations report progress, compared to only 30% when men are not involved. That's according to research by the Boston Consulting Group. Unfortunately, many men don't feel equipped to play any role in inclusion and equity. For some men, the traditional model of masculinity steers us away from talking about emotional topics, (laughs) except maybe to rant about sports or politics, but that's not actually talking about those things in uh, an empathetic and helpful way. That's just arguing, usually. And other fears get in the way, too, of men playing any kind of role in inclusion and equality, such as the possibility of saying something wrong. And despite your good intentions, being labeled as sexist or discriminatory. In fact, I actually shared with today's guest that actual concern of mine that uh, I was feeling rather vulnerable that I might slip up. So what's a guy to do when you know it's the right thing to do to help in this effort, but either you feel like an outsider and don't see any room for your voice, or you have these fears or awkwardness or any other things that might get in the way. And even if you are willing to man up and step into the ring (laughs) to uh, fight the good fight in support of women and minority groups, how can you do that in a way that's actually helpful and maybe not divisive or somehow working going backwards? Well, I'm excited about an important new book that's just come out discussing how to help women both advance and thrive at work. It's called The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back. And it includes an entire section equipping men to play a critical role in fixing workplaces so they work for everyone, including women and minorities. It also reveals how serving this way will also help more men advance at work and enjoy greater well-being themselves. I'm so excited to have Michelle King back on the show today. She's a PhD and the Director of Inclusion at Netflix. She joined us in episode 202 with an initial discussion about her new book. And today she's back to talk about the role of men in tackling gender inequality at work. Michelle is a leading global expert in gender and organizations. Before joining Netflix, she was head of the UN Women's Global Innovation Coalition for Change. She's host of The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories, challenges, and triumphs of women across innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. And her book is The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work. Michelle King, welcome back to The Engaging Leader. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Michelle, who is the organization's ideal worker and what impact does that have on both women and men trying to live up to that ideal standard? 
so glad you asked this question. So I'll back up a bit. When we think about gender inequality in workplaces, most people, like if you walk around your office, most people will probably struggle to explain how it works. And that's a real issue because if we don't understand how something works, we can't really solve it. Um, it actually took me quite a while of sitting in academic journal articles, uh, swimming in them actually, about 3,000 of them to figure it out. So how it works in workplaces is organizations were really designed with what we call like an ideal type of worker. So when you're thinking of the ideal type of worker, and I want you to kind of imagine it now, you can close your eyes, but if you're driving, don't do this and think <laughs> about what that ideal leader or ideal type of manager looks like, right? And research has been done on this by, by a woman called Virginia Shine over the last 30 years. She's replicated this across geographies, across countries. And what we've consistently found is that when you think of the ideal worker or manager or leader, you're going to think of, of a male. Um, and I call this sort of Don Draper, right, from Mad Men. You're going to think of an, the 1960s Mad Men, and this is still true today. So you're going to think of somebody who tends to be white, middle-class, heterosexual, like an able-bodied male. Um, the thing that's really important, though, is it's not just what they look like. It's also, you know, how they behave. So what we find is the ideal worker tends to be somebody who's assertive, dominant, aggressive, competitive, and willing to like make work the number one priority, right? So um, they're sort of free from dependent care because they've got somebody at home who's watching kids, which normally tends to be women. So that's sort of the ideal that everybody's required to live up to. And what happens in workplaces is you have this ideal standard. You have leaders who kind of match this ideal standard and they match it through their behaviors. So engaging in some of those aggressive, dominant, assertive. But then what we find is employees also need to match that standard because they want to advance you know in order to advance you've got to match the ideal and so what that then creates is whole workplace environments that can be described as competitive assertive aggressive dominant you know that tends to be the currency by which we can demonstrate we actually match the ideal the challenge with this is it's very easy to think that all men fit the ideal but they don't so you know this creates a really narrow way in which men can show up at work um, and that's very challenging for men, right? Because not all men want to be aggressive, assertive, dominant, competitive, or exclusionary, or engage in like the marginalization of women to access power. Um, men want different ways to show up, right? What makes it particularly challenging for women, and I'm going to say all women here, but explain why in a minute, is that for women, you know, in society, we've got kind of established roles for how men and women are meant to behave. So women are meant to be meek, mild, um, maternal, they're meant to show up in sort of softer ways, right? Whereas men, they, they're the ideal standard in workplaces actually fit society's standards for how men are meant to behave. So men just being what we stereotypically associate with being men are going to be perceived as more manager-like. But for women, they've got to grapple with an ideal standard in the workplace that doesn't fit society's standards for how women are meant to behave. And so there's this conflict or this constant tension. And we call it in the literature the double bind. And the reason it's a double bind or catch-22 for people who are not American is because it's impossible. So women can't, you know, both be meek but then be assertive and dominant. So we're walking this tension of either being liked because you're conforming to people's ideas of what a woman should be, or but then you're not seen as a leader or being disliked because you're ignoring those standards and adopting the masculine standards of work to be seen leader-like, then you're not liked. And so the whole thing is a really difficult situation for women. The thing that makes this doubly challenging 
is the more ways you differ from the ideal, the more barriers you're going to face at work. So when you add in race, sexual orientation, physical, mental ability, religion, age, when you add in any of those areas you differ from Don on, um, suddenly it becomes that much harder for you. So while it might be difficult for men to live up to this ideal standard, it's even harder for women and specifically women who differ on any of those um, areas of difference. Yeah, it seemed, I was just, as I was reading the book, it, so many of the challenges were resonating with me just based on my career. And I was thinking it's uh, maybe for a lot of men, the challenges, um, there's, there's negative consequences, but maybe they're like harder to see because they're longer term. It's not really sustainable to not be able to bring your whole self to work. So you end up with, in the long run, men with a lar- larger amounts of depression and suicide and so forth, and just having great re- deep regrets about what they missed out on with their family and so forth. But, you know, maybe for most of them, the white guys at least, uh, they had short-term success at, at in their career, but it's harder for women to even achieve that. Yeah, I think the thing that um, makes it difficult talking about the challenges inequality creates for men is um, male silencing at work. I talk about this a lot in my book. So one of the requirements to be a man and to be masculine is that you're silent. So you don't talk about your feelings. You don't talk about how hard things are. You don't talk about what you're struggling with. The challenges with that is if you are struggling with inequality, you're going to be silent. So there are studies that show that men who work in unequal environments or what we call hostile environments towards women, so environments where there's a lot of sort of sexist banter or, you know, a lot of sort of inequality moments, things I talk about in my book, day-to-day experiences of harassment, discrimination, marginalization, those environments, men dislike it as much as women, but they're less likely to speak up. And so I think, you know, what that shows us is that men are very much tied to this idea they need to try and perform to this ideal. And I think in many ways, men are really penalized if they don't, because it's not just that they're not conforming to the leadership ideal, they're not conforming to what it means to be a man. So one of the things I say in my book, um, you know, while on the one hand it benefits men that naturally, you know, just simply living up to traditional masculinity is a way to show that you fit the ideal leader stereotype and you're going to do well at work. The problem is, is that that also works the other way. So when you, you know, move away from this idea of, of what it means to be Don Draper, you're also moving away from what it means to be a man. And that's very challenging for men and men. And so that's why I say, you know, the number one thing that men can do when it comes to gender inequality is to think about what it means to be a man and to think about what that looks like to you and to redefine it on your own terms. You know, the biggest benefit around gender equality is that it's freedom. Like when somebody asks me that, they're like, you know, so why do you believe in this? And I'm like, because fundamentally it's freedom. It's the freedom to be yourself at work. It's the freedom to show up differently. It's, you know, not that masculinity is bad or toxic. Like for me, I struggle with that term because anything to an extreme is going to be toxic, right? There's certainly going to be environments in which you need to be a bit more dominant and you need to be a bit more assertive. And maybe competition's good, right? So no one's taking away for that. What we're saying is give people the freedom to show up differently. And the same is true for women. Like women need the freedom to, in some cases, assert themselves, you know, and we see this play out for women all the time when it comes to like, you know, smile more like, or, you know, it, it just, it winds me up, you know, you see that at work and really what people are saying is, could you just go back to being meek and mild and, you know, <laughs> do that a little bit more, make me more comfortable with you having power. Could you, could you help me do that by giving me sort of a more feminine face? And, and that's really what we're saying to women. So for me, this works both ways. It's about giving each of us the freedom to be ourselves at work and, and importantly, to be valued for that. 
Yeah, I want to go back to something you said because I actually had underlined it myself. It jumped out at me as I was reading the book. The single most important thing men can do to support gender equality is to reflect on what it means to be a man at work. And it jumped out at me as just such a surprise. So it's not necessarily like what it's not necessarily supporting you know, or building a new D and I uh, program at work. It's it's a self-reflective exercise. How did you land on that? Yeah. So you know, uh, when I think about this a lot, right? It, it's it, on the whole not fixing women thing. Um, I think you know it's too easy to place the blame on on women for in, the inequality we experience today. It's too easy to tell women to do a lot of things to fit into a system. And in the book, I sh- you know I literally have three sections. Right, one whole section on awareness raising for women, and the whole book is about raising women's awareness of inequality. But we need to do the same with men. So we need to do the same in terms of understanding that just because the world has said that this is what it means to be a man and this is how we enact masculinity doesn't mean you need to buy into it, particularly if it doesn't work for you. And workplaces are such a great place to trial that because to be a man at work today um, or, you know, if we take the Don Draper ideal, it means, you know, having male solidarity groups or informal networks where you exclude women, maybe leaving women off the email, not inviting women to drinks. Um, it means speaking up and asserting yourself in meetings, which also means maybe not listening to other people in the room. That tend to be people who, you know, are more marginalized generally anyway. It might mean overlooking people's contributions or making sort of sexist or racist comments or belittling others or excluding others. You know, those are really some of the practices that we've inherited from the system of inequality that say, you know, in order to be in a powerful position, you have to marginalize and discriminate against others. And those others tend to be anybody who doesn't fit the ideal, aka women. And so for men, I say, you know, really think about, is that who you want to be in in your organization? And does that work for you? You know, my thinking is in all the men that I've worked with, there's a very small segment of the population that the stuff works for. A lot of men that I spoke to wanted to talk about fatherhood and how challenging it was and how they were struggling with their identities, particularly sort of the midpoint in their careers. You know, men's identity because of the Donald Draper thing is, is really tied to being a breadwinner. And so men want an opportunity to explore like, hey, what would my identity be outside of that? You know, how could I um, show up differently? Would it be okay to take some time off to care for my kids? Would it be okay to reduce my working hours? Would it be okay for work maybe to be the second priority in my life? Like, what does that look like? You know, so I think men are given very little wiggle room or freedom to think about themselves outside of, I'm a breadwinner, I must provide. And the pressure that creates for the men I've spoken to is tremendous. Um, and then, you know, even just maintaining that, if then if you want to advance and lead, you've got to engage in all these behaviors that don't feel so good. You know, like male silence comes at a cost, exactly to your point around suicide rates, around depression, because to sit there and observe things happen, but not feel like you can speak up or change that, it must be, it must be very constraining. So I think a lot of this comes down to men thinking about who they want to be and what masculinity means to them. So beyond, and then beyond that sort of self-reflection step that you're talking about, you uh, a big guidance in the book that men can do and, and male leaders is talking about these things that you call inequality moments. Can you um, how do you define inequality moment? 
Yeah, so the thing about inequality, right, particularly in the diversity inclusion work today in companies, we tend to sort of think it's like this ambiguous thing that sits out there, right? So we're like, hey, there's diversity and inclusion, and we think it's just hire more women or just be more inclusive, right? But it's not. Like the reality is inequality is a lived experience. It's not that that's what it is. So in workplaces, inequality shows up for each of us in day-to-day moments. And it can be, you know, I've got hundreds of these examples where I was told to wash the the dishes in the kitchen sink by my boss, who was a male. I was the only female on that team. And all the people who reported to me were men, and they all laughed when that happened. And, you know, that was my first day or a passing comment by my boss that, you know, he was joking, but he was like, oh, I hate working with women. They're all so difficult. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and so you, it can be things that are like that where people are sort of shocked to hear that. But, you know, if you start talking to women, there are countless examples of how this plays out every day. And the thing is, men are often sort of witnesses to that. And the interesting thing about being a witness to it or participant, but we'll stick with witnesses for now, (laughs) is that being on the receiving end of an inequality moment is just as detrimental to your mental, emotional well-being as it is if you were witnessing it. And I think when people really like think about what that means, so, you know, I might be receiving on the receiving end of some derogatory comment, but the people who witnessed it and didn't say anything are going to receive the same negative outcome as me. And the reason for that is, you know, it's just as detrimental to see a colleague being discriminated against or marginalized against because it makes us feel unsafe. The safety is a really important part of this. And I try and draw the parallels in the book, you know, creating safe environments where people feel like they can be themselves. They're not going to be penalized, harassed or bullied for it. And so I think really, you know, when we're looking at how inequality moments show up for men, it can just be witnessing it, which is why, like in those moments I shared, none of the men spoke up. None of them kind of raised the issue. And I think it's really important. It can be as simple as saying, you know, defending a woman or saying, hey, that's not cool or saying, well, why are you asking Michelle to wash the dishes? You could just say that, just ask why. So when we do that in that moment, it disrupts everybody um, to kind of acknowledge what it is that's happening. And I think the most important thing is is asking people to explain it. So just using why as, as a good, good starting point for men. If that's all you're comfortable doing, just do that. It's no good to come to the woman afterwards, which some men did with me and say, hey, you know, I wish I'd said something. I just didn't feel like I could because Ben's our boss too. You know, that doesn't help me. By then, you know, I, I don't, don't trust. I don't feel safe. I don't feel like any of the men are my allies, even though I have to work with them. So I think it's really thinking through some of that in those moments. As I was reading the book and thinking, okay, I'm a guy, uh, a white guy, and I'm a leader in the organization. How can I start putting some of this into practice? And I don't necessarily have uh, those sort of inequality moments that pop into my head. I was thinking of some related experiences, somewhere maybe I created something like that um, uh, unintentionally, And, you know, I do have like a self-reflection practice. So a lot of times I'll be thinking about something the next day and like, did I really say that yesterday? And then circle back and apologize and try to, you know, repair. So I was wondering, well, so for example, yeah, I had a coworker, a female coworker who was asked me a question about what might be be behind some sort of odd internal politics things that she observed at another company. And so my answer to her it was trying to explain what you know my perception was, and I used the phrase catfight. And then she gently pointed out to me that, you know, perhaps we could avoid saying things like catfight when we're talking about female managers. And that she was just gentle and private, and it gave me a chance to reflect 
and realize like yeah what that implied and you know is there a different way I could have talked about the situation it seemed like there was a silo mentality that we were observing or there was a turf war um and so I was wondering is it helpful to then like as a leader do you stand up and share that story broadly publicly like hey I just wanted this this thing happened and this is an example of me in my journey of being more sensitive and that was an inequality moment that I had a part of and it's not appropriate. So I just want to put everybody who's listening to this at ease. We are all going to get this wrong, right? <laughs> so I'm a white woman. I carry with that white privilege. I carry with that blindness to, um, I'm speaking metaphorically there, blindness to the challenges that women of color face, that people who have different physical and mental ability from me face, that people who have different religions, ages, ethnic, whatever it is, every area that somebody's not the same as me on, and there's quite a few, I'm going to not understand their experience of the world. So my work is to humble myself and to say, you know what, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to say things that are racist and I'm going to have to own that. And people always flinch when I say this, you know, because it's like, wow, you're admitting that you might be racist. Of course I'm admitting I might be racist. I've come from a system that values whiteness and what it means to be white and straight and able-bodied. And so naturally, uh, you know, I am part of that system and it's my job to to change that. And I can only change that by starting on myself and understanding how it is that some of the things that I do might be racist and might be sexist or might be whatever. And so we have to do the work and doing the work means humbling yourself. Doing the work means acknowledging when you get it wrong. And I think it's a real challenge because I think people spend a huge amount of time trying to be good. So trying to defend the position that somehow they're good. You know, they have a really hard time hearing the feedback that, hey, you did that and it was racist. And guess what? As a white person, I don't get to decide if it's racist or not. Just like as a man, you don't get to decide if it's sexist or not. And so it's humbling yourself to say, I'm here to learn. I'm going to do the work myself. So I'm going to do the work to educate myself on what those barriers are, but I will never truly know. And that's why like, it's a continual process of seeking to understand. Awareness is an ongoing journey, right? Like, Because life plays out and these moments pop up. And so we have to continually raise our awareness. Um, and I think that's actually all marginalized groups want to see. I mean, here I'm speaking on behalf of white women, but I know for a fact, you know, from what we want from white men in organizations is not to be perfect. It's not to be good. It's not to be, we want white men to understand the challenges we face day to day. And we want white men to do exactly what you did, which is seek to understand. So while you might not have meant catfight in that way, the worst thing you could have done is defended it and made a person feel bad for raising it, which often happens in organizations mm -hmm. where the sexist comment then becomes, you know, somebody raising that with you then becomes the issue. So you're saying, oh, are you calling me sexist? And suddenly <laughs> that's the issue we're solving for rather than the sexist behavior, right? And so yeah. I think it's understanding how, you know, you, you might not have intended it and all of that park you out of it. How is that playing up? and seeking to understand it. And then exactly as you say, when you share that, that's the humility. So the humility is seeking to understand and, and rather than trying to be right. And then really playing that out with your teams in terms of sharing that. And when you do that, you give everybody permission not to be perfect. 
and everybody permission to learn. And I talk about this creating a culture of learning, you know, that's really what this is. Like, how can we learn from each other? How can I understand how something you perceive one way, I might perceive another, and how I can show up differently for you and do that? Because I want to be an ally. I want to create an environment where we care for each other, where it's safe. And I can only do that if I understand how this plays out for you differently. So I think exactly what you're speaking about is what we're looking for. Um, and I just want to mention, you know, it's not just for men. Like this is what white women have to do with women of color. We have to play that forward as well and humble ourselves to seek to understand how, you know, sometimes our whiteness gets in the way of being a good ally to women of color. So, um, you know, I think we, we all have work to do and we can't do that unless we're willing to let go of this idea of needing to be perfect or good. And it's really hard just to say to listeners in my space because people look at me like, hey, you're this diversity inclusion leader or you're this gender equality person, you know everything. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, um, you know, have you guys heard of white feminism? Like, it's a thing. Like, we've got a lot of work to do and I'm not going to get it right. And I give myself permission not to have to be right all the time. Well, that's really helpful to hear. I appreciate you sharing that. No worries. Well, we have only scratched the surface of the role of men in <laughs> tackling inequality, gender inequality at work. There's a whole section in the book, Overcome, The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers that are Holding Back at Work. So I encourage folks to get their hands on your book. Michelle, where can people find out more about you and, and get the book? Yeah, thank you for, for asking that. Um, so I've got a website, michellepking.com, and on there we're relaunching it in a week's time. So it'll be, it'll be available sort of mid-February. And on there will be a bunch of resources. We've got videos. We've got um, access to my podcast, which is my weekly podcast, The Fix. We've got sort of a range of toolkits and, and instructional sort of information for people. So you can get much more of me on that site. I've also got a number of events you can sign up to as part of the book launch. It'll be available through the site. So, yeah, please just act this aside. It's kind of the one-stop shop for everything that you're interested in. And just to mention, you know, there's a bunch of resources outside of me that the book highlights, like other authors, um, you know, that I've interviewed throughout the book and a bunch of resources. You know, when you're looking at the book, maybe look at the back around the index, you'll, you'll be able to see sort of the biography and just find out uh, more information on, on me, but also on other authors that I recommend. Michelle King, it's been a blast to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. You know, this book just resonated with me on so many different levels, both in terms of my desire to help more women succeed, advance, thrive at the workplace, to help more uh, women and other minority groups just have complete equality at work, to have the same opportunities as everybody else. But I was also surprised by how much I saw myself over and over again in the stories that Michelle shares in the book. And I am persuaded that developing a practice of reflecting on the role of men at work, what's, what's the role of men in the workplace, and talking about these inequality moments, either that we've observed someone else experience or maybe that we've had an unfortunate role in, or even just ourselves, experience, even if we've been in more of a position of privilege like a lot of us white guys, we've still probably experienced moments of being an outsider or just not fitting the mold, not being good enough or just not meeting the expectations. And that pressure that comes from trying to fit in, trying to figure out the rules of the game. And wouldn't it be better if we could all just talk more vulnerably about those moments to understand each other better, to have greater empathy, and then to feel more freedom, to bring our whole self to work. So I encourage you to pick up the book, The Fix, 
It's just a delightful read. It's so well-researched and well-written and just very meaningful stories. You can get the book at uh, Michelle's website, and we'll put links to that as well as to her podcast, The Fix, and to her LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. Also, she had a great TEDx talk that's less than 20 minutes long. I think you'd love that too. We'll put all those links on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com. This is a production of Workforce Communication. We're a team of consultants and creatives using the power of communication to help organizations enhance the well-being and performance of their people. My colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, fully engage employees, and achieve superior business results in several areas, including employer branding, talent management, wellness, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at workforcecommunication.com. Our thanks to Cecily Leahy, our producer, Jamie Barnes, Tom Hitchcock, and Jenny Kalinda from our social media team, JJ Leahy from our video and graphic design team, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Betsy Leahy, our sound and video editor. Until next time, remember, the people changing the world today aren't just leaders, they're engagers. Engagers.